Hi everyone, thank you all for joining. Today we have the great honor and privilege of having Dr. Estelmarie Rodriguez with us. Dr. Rodriguez is an Associate Director of Community Outreach and the co-lead of the Thoracic Site Disease Group of the NCI-designated Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. She has a special interest in the early detection of lung cancer and supervises the lung cancer screening program at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. She's also an active member of the Experimental Therapeutics Program. Dr. Rodriguez received her bachelor's degree from Columbia College and her medical degree from SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. She completed her internal medicine residency at Columbia University's New York Presbyterian Hospital and her medical oncology fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Rodriguez also has a master's degree in public health from the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid, Spain, and she has given numerous lectures as an invited speaker on issues related to lung cancer and healthcare disparities. Dr. Rodriguez, thank you so much for your time and your willingness to be here with us. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, looking forward to our discussion today. Absolutely. So to introduce myself and my team, my name is Priyanka Sensel, and with me I have Drake Long, and we're part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, or ALSI for short. And we would like to take a few minutes to share about our organization, as well as introduce lung cancer and lung cancer screening. ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. And we're a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. We do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. Lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 70%. We believe educating people about lung cancer and lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rates for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we've given over 250 presentations on lung cancer and lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the U.S., as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. And over the last year, we worked with over 340 mayors from every single U.S. state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including multiple mayors, Arizona State Senator Leela Alston, who's a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and Lieutenant Governor of Colorado Diane Primavera to issue public service announcements, emphasizing the importance of lung cancer screening. In addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started this podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and experts to share their stories. ALSI worked with U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions recognizing the importance of the early detection of lung cancer screening. And in December 2022, the U.S. Senate passed a bipartisan resolution for the third year in a row designating lung November 2022 as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month and expressing support for the early detection and treatment of lung cancer. Senate Resolution 863 expands on previous resolutions by emphasizing the need for efforts to increase awareness of screening among veterans, women, and racial minorities. Elsie also actively worked with Representative Brendan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine's Law for Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. So lastly, we want to talk a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose computed tomography scan. 
and this scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Pro-Administration Task Force, also known as the USPSTF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. And right now, they recommend the people between the ages of 50 and 80 who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more, and who are currently smoking or have quit within the past 15 years, get annual low-dose CT scans. One pack year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year, and therefore 20 pack years can be met in a multitude of ways, including smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. If you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria we just discussed, please encourage them to take our lung cancer screening eligibility assessment so that they can learn whether they are eligible and have the opportunity to contact our team at ALSI to guide them through the screening process. And finally, we want to highlight that there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to the lung. We believe that it is so important that we recognize these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So thank you all for taking the time to listen to that quick introduction to lung cancer and lung cancer screening. Without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. We have a few questions for, for Dr. Rodriguez, but we will also have a Q&A session at the end where you all can submit any questions you have for her. So um, Dr. Rodriguez, thank you again for your time. And our first question for you is, could you please tell us what a day in your life looks like? So um, thank you for that question. So I am a thoracic oncologist, so my, my regular day um, is seeing patients that have been diagnosed with lung cancer. And that's why when you meet patients with lung cancer and three quarters of them have presented with metastatic disease, the first question I ask myself is, you know, could we have avoided this? Could we have, you know, diagnosed this early and offer this patient curative surgery? And over the last, um, since I graduated from fellowship, like 15 to 20 years, we have really transformed the treatment for lung cancer. So we definitely have more lung cancer survivors but many of the patients that are now benefiting from treatment, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, they still die of their disease. So lung cancer screening, which is something that we have known about for a long time uh, and is so underutilized, it really has the possibility of really uh, getting to more real cures because we will be able to enter to catch lung cancer at its curable stage. So that's something that um, we would like to see our, our clinics change, um, uh, but my job is to treat patients once they have been diagnosed. Um, I Once they already have seen a pulmonologist, they already have had a biopsy, they've been identified. Um, and unfortunately, over the last two years after COVID and all screening programs have trended down because people's attentions were elsewhere and many of our programs got closed we are seeing now a little bit more of a rise of uh, more advanced uh, diagnosis. I think that it's been more dramatic changes in mammogram colonoscopy. Lung cancer has been, screening has been so underutilized in Florida. It's only about 3% of eligible Floridians that get, that get screened in average. So we didn't really lower more than that because uh, the bar is so low, but we definitely wanna get people to change the conversation about lung cancer. And that's the other part of my job. So my job during the day is seeing patients doing with lung cancer, um, treating them, giving the best treatment options. And I work with a multidisciplinary team um, of surgeons, um, radiation oncologists, um, imaging um, pulmonologists, interventional pulmonologists, and we all try to you know, find the best treatment for this patient. But on my academic time, because I'm on academic time, 
um, in working in an academic center. So my, my one of my research interests is trying to find ways to increase our lung cancer screening program in our Hispanic population. So that's why I do the rest of the week. So as an associate director of community outreach and co-lead of the thoracic site disease group at UMiami, could you please tell us a little bit about your lung cancer screening program at um, UMiami? Yeah, so, um, so I'm glad you mentioned the word outreach because I think that for us to change the conversation about lung cancer screening, we have to stop devising these beautiful programs with beautiful machines and just kind of wait for people to come to us. We really have to engage the community, kind of change the conversation. And that's the, the work that takes a long time. And, um, you know, and it works in many different facets. But um, our program has been around since the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial was launched in 2011. So we've been part of the process. We enroll patients in that trial. We enroll patients in the LCAP trial. Um, and But it wasn't until insurance companies in Florida started covering lung cancer screening and it was formally approved that we were able to grow our program. And um, our program has initially, because it, it grew as a research idea, it was small. And then over the last, I guess we've been doing uh, screenings for about 12 years, but I will say it's been in the last six years when we really hire a navigator and uh, became part of the ACR registry that we were able to really grow. And part of growing, part of what outreach is, so I do a lot of work going in the community. So I'll give you an example. So I'm, I'm in the board of the American Cancer Society and the American Cancer Society, which I support greatly, has given a lot of money and a lot of great work for other screenings. And lung cancer kind of always comes lower down in their list of priorities, but it's also because they don't have a lot of thoracic oncologists and pulmonologists who are involved in, in their enterprise. So we all have to get involved in foundations that are funding research and screening. Um, so that's one of the things I do. So I get involved with our community, trying to raise awareness and make sure that if money can be uh, used for lung cancer screening initiatives that is used. Um, and then we do things like during Lung Cancer Awareness Month, we have informational tables and we have partnered with uh, community-based organizations like um, Break the Cycle, which is a group of um, African-American cyclists that meet in um, areas that are underserved in our in Miami downtown area and they feed the homeless and it's a great concept they feed they, they ride their bikes so they're doing an exercise they feed the homeless and then they communicate a, a, a message so that's something that we have done with them for different things but I think for long time specifically screening what they're doing which is really going out there to communities that need and kind of going cycling into communities that we don't go to as physicians is key. So we have to engage uh, community navigators and people that are in the community that have been affected by lung cancer in the conversation. So that's what outreach is about. So we have a program where people order and we have optimized our program to get as many patients that we see um, in our clinics to get referred for screening. But also another part of this is to really go out there and talk about lung cancer screening with people where they are, whatever they are, like, you know, in a barbershop and talk about someone who got diagnosed and talk to people in their church. So we kind of have to engage in many levels. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, mm -hmm. Dr. Rodriguez, for sharing. First of all, we want to thank you for all of the work that you're doing, because I think it's just so important. And it's um, wonderful to hear how the program has expanded in, in recent years. And you had mentioned that, you know, lung cancer is one of the least funded cancers. And, um, you know, that is 
the, the case across across the board. And I think um, outreach and efforts to lobby for greater um, for great, greater uh, fundraising for lung cancer research and just screening programs is is really important. And being able to implement um, resources for patients, such as uh, patient navigators. Um, to really help increase uptake of lung cancer screening. So um, it, that's just so wonderful to hear. And um, our next question is, could you tell us a little bit about what you've learned while helping to lead the program? So um, it would be wonderful if you could talk about, um, you know, what you think has um, ha has gone really well in terms of building the program, as well as if you could talk about some challenges that you faced um, or that the program has faced and maybe what you would have done differently. Um, I don't know if I can share, but I will describe to you what we have first learned. So we we have learned that our community is different than the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. So the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial, which is the largest screening trial that we have funded with tax money, um, that took so long, so long to implement, but it was well done, but it really was very disproportionate in the amount of high-risk smokers that were enrolled. So it only included 1.8% Hispanics, and that tells you that that trial didn't really um, take us where we needed to go for my community. So we didn't learn from that trial about the challenges of adherence. We didn't learn about how to best capture patients that were Hispanics and what the challenges were. And the same thing for African-Americans, like the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial had 4.5% African-Americans, where in our community, we have 15% in the patients that we screen. So we have looked first about who are our patients. So we serve a largely Hispanic, Spanish-speaking population, which the rest of the country is gonna soon uh, also um, serve because it's the largest um, ethnic group. Um, so when we look at our patients that we have screened, 47% of them are Hispanics compared to 1.8% of patients in the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. So when we look at the differences, we see that Hispanics are um, have a lower smoking history so that tells you from the get-go that many Hispanics who are at risk will be not included in the older trials. And we know now with the new guidelines that the smoking history has decreased um, and the age has decreased to 50 and the smoking history to 20 pack years. Actually, one of the groups that really benefits uh, besides African-Americans is Hispanics. So like the, the amount of Hispanics, the eligibility criteria will go up by almost 78% among Hispanics. So that tells you that we were missing all these people uh, for all these years, and we already were missing them because no one was getting screened. And I think understanding how our community feels about um, the stigma of cigarettes and, um, and who Hispanics are a very diverse group. And we're lucky enough in Miami that we actually don't have, have a very diverse Hispanic community. So we have very recent immigrants from Cuba who may have a higher smoking history. We may have people that have been established. I mean, third, fourth generation Hispanics who live here. We also have Venezuelans, Puerto Ricans, um, Dominicans. So there's a lot of different Caribbean. Um, there's a lot of different types of community that may feel about it differently and maybe have different levels of acculturation. And that that is something that we have to understand and we have learned to understand when we approach our patients about screening that patients are not very First of all, we're gonna get less Hispanics to agree, to tell us that they're smoking uh, because they, they actually have a less smoking history than other groups, but also they're not gonna feel as comfortable to kind of share that information. So one of the things that has worked for us and we're lucky enough to have a workforce that is culturally more competent because they're from the community. So we have kind of kind of notch questions for our 
when we and when we enter patients in, in our system, we try to get um, some kind of approach with the patient that they can feel comfortable sharing their smoking history because the smoking history then triggers all these signals. And uh, and we have like many centers, we have created these best practice advisories that kind of give you alerts in the in your electronic medical record that this patient is a candidate for screening. And we try that. And many centers have also found that those are not very helpful because doctors just kind of ignore these alerts. But I still think it's important to classify patients that will be screened. So at least you can follow them and find ways to intervene. So we recently did this with the American Cancer Society. We did a quality improvement project. And I will mention it because it, we learned a lot about the challenges. So we spent a whole year trying to collect data of who was being missed. And that was the hardest thing because we learned that many patients were not given their smoking history um, and the data was all over the place. Um, so it took us like a long time to kind of figure out who are actually the patients that would have been screened in 2021. Um, so we got a baseline. So we were happy to find out that for our whole institution, our, our baseline screening was around close to 20%. So we were not doing that poorly uh, for patients that are already in our system. Um, and then we spent a whole year trying to do all of this multi-level um, interventions from increasing the navigator time to having a social media campaign to having these outreach, um, um, outreach opportunities that I described uh, to optimizing the electronic medical record. So our patients that are using our portals, the patient portals, part of the patient portal, they have um, a health maintenance gap where patients get this, it tells them you're due for a colonoscopy, you're due for a, a mammogram. And we were kind of shocked to find out that screening was not even part of the list of things that patients were getting warned about. And that just goes to show you how even our in an institution like the University of Miami, these things get missed because cervical cancer, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, come get a lot of funding, they kind of come to the front and then lung cancer screening kind of gets seen as like an afterthought in many discussions. So we thought it was important that patients were at least getting their own direct warning about screening. So at least they could engage their physicians in that conversation. So we were able to do that. But after all of that, we opened some satellite clinics to do screening on Saturdays. I mean, we tried different things and we were show, we showed an improvement, but it was only 5%. So it just goes to show you that um, a lot of effort can can take place. You can do one intervention, you have to do many interventions, um, and then you have to find ways for these interventions to kind of um, keep going. Because if you fund something like a social media campaign, you can, we did one last year and we saw the, the amount of people that were going on our website, the amount of people that were calling uh, for screening went up. But then once the media campaign died out, those, those um, increased interest went away. So it's a it's a constant it's a so what we have learned is that you have to target this in many different ways you have to educate physicians so we spend time talking to our trainees family uh, practice doctors who are training and really the people who are seeing the primary care um, the primary care clinics are a, a big place where you can capture screening so we kind of revive re re-engage them in the discussion, remind them about the new screening guidelines, and kind of share best practices about how you can get a patient to say yes to the screening. Um, so that that is an effort that I think will continue to pay off because once you have those conversations, uh, physicians are 
will 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 make that part of their habit. You just have to keep having them. I think the thing that always helps, and I will tell you, last year one of our navigators went on maternity leave, and the the time that she was away, our lung cancer screening rate went down by five percent. So it just goes to show you that some of these services are very much people interface like you kind of have to have people engage with people you need navigators to engage patients to adhere to the second screening to to come in to like answer questions and especially a lot of the fears that are around being diagnosed with lung cancer so i think you kind of need the providers to provide the message you need to collect the right smoking history you need to have a constant message that it's in many different levels either in the electronic medical record that the physician sees that the electronic medical record patient photo that the patient sees and then you also have to keep this going you have to keep doing it like you just you can't just do it for three months you have to keep doing it every year you have to have a plan that okay this year we did this and this is what worked and it only got us like five percent more now next year what are what do we learn worked um and what we can keep doing to make it grow um but i think of all the things that we have done definitely the navigators by far are the biggest investment. Wow, that that was just so interesting. Um, thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. It's um, it was also really interesting to see how the racial slash ethnic distribution differs for your program when compared to NLST. And I think you brought up, you highlighted some really key points in that the NLST has really been a landmark trial in helping to formulate the lung USPSTF lung cancer screening guidelines, but. We, um, in terms of racial minorities, there's a very low representation of Hispanic individuals and African-American individuals. And so because the, and the USPSF guidelines were you know, mainly focused and based off of the results of the NLST, it's, um, studies have shown that even with the new expanded lung screen guidelines, the new updated guidelines in 2021, um, as you had mentioned, there still exists a lot of racial and gender disparities. And you, you talked about how um, you know, Hispanic populations are more likely to be diagnosed with lung cancer at younger ages. And so that might mean that, um, you know, potentially having different criteria for different racial groups might be able, might be the, the, the best way to ensure that we're, we're screening all high risk individuals in each of these populations, since uh, a one size fits all type of criteria approach might not be ideal when, when there are so many different um, when the epidemiology of lung cancer is different um, across the different racial groups. So I think that was an, a fantastic point that you brought up. And you also talked about, you know, needing multiple interventions. So using patient navigators, um, using electronic patient health records to, um, you know, alert doctors when a patient needs to get a lung cancer screening or, or maybe when they're even eligible for lung cancer screening, needing to gather, first of all, the smoking history and um, and you had mentioned how a lot of patients weren't providing that information, and if they're not, then I think it's so important that we reflect on, you know, how do we collect that information, or what are the barriers to collecting that information, really addressing that. So it's just so so amazing to to hear all of the interventions that you and and your team have tried to put into place with this program, um, and seeing it grow. So um, yeah, it just thank you for sharing. It's really eye opening to see. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier about your efforts to increase uh, screening and awareness in the Latinx community uh, based on your previous trials and work. Um, so could you please tell us the status or state of screening in the Latinx community and, you know, what you're trying to hope to implement um, or try out this year to increase, um, I think what you said, the 5% increase in screening? 
Um, so I will kind of share with you that, you know, Hispanics um, have different challenges. So in terms of lung cancer, so lung cancer is the number one cause of death for males uh, and the second one for women. Um, so we we have more other competing um, needs in the Hispanic community, like heart disease and actually accidents. But when we look at, you know, to answer the question about screening, you have to see how Hispanics are presenting with lung cancer. So I know that you won't be able to see my image if you're listening, but I did wanted to share that actually um, Hispanics when compared to eth other ethnic groups like whites and African-Americans actually present with um, less um, early stage disease. So they're less 16% less likely to be diagnosed early, which already tells you that that's a group that we need to screen more because why are they being presenting with less early stage disease? Now, what we find is that once they have insurance, which is a huge barrier for the Hispanic community, is one. It's like one of the top on on insure under insure ethnic groups. We once people have insurance, they're they're equally likely to get surgery. So that we has been shown in many centers. Um, but the one thing that sometimes people ignore is that in the Hispanic community, there's a lot of denial of treatment. So, and this, this has also been, been described and needs to be addressed in the African-American community. So like patients are 26% less likely to not receive any treatment at all for lung cancer. So when I look at this kind of picture of how lung cancer presents in Hispanics, and I know that we're being diagnosed early less often, and when we present early stage or late stage, uh, either the family or the patient, fatalism, you can call it many things, health insurance, they're less likely to receive effective treatment so that really the intervention is to be early stage disease. And um, and that's where we really have a lot of work to do. Um, so I think screening, again, becomes an obvious answer to that, like how do we change the tide? I think that, um, you know, we haven't covered this, but the health insurance is one of the biggest challenges for us to get Hispanic screen. So we work with federally, uh, federally funded uh, community health centers in our area and they they get a lot of grant money from the state uh, for breast and cervical cancer initiatives which is wonderful but lung cancer because I still feel that there's a lot of stigma even from the funding perspective um, this kind of free money for free screening doesn't get distributed as well so um, many of the centers now have lung cancer screening month and they'll give like $100 lung screening tests offer for free, which is great if you think that $100, people spend $100 in other things, but lung cancer screening is not a one-time one intervention. Like many screening tests, it's not a one-time thing. Like you have to then have insurance to see a surgeon and, and get a biopsy and have someone look at this pulmonary nodule and follow it up. So health insurance is one of the biggest um, challenges for the Hispanic community, and especially where I live in Florida, where we have an expanded Medicaid it's a big challenge. So that I, you know, the patients that I, I talk about that I see through my screening program, all of them have insurance and it's challenging. The patients that I don't see because they don't have insurance and they get seen at Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is our publicly funded hospital, those patients, there's so many needs and the system is, they have a screening program, but the challenges are many. And I think that we need to, to advocate for resources for underfunded, underinsured patients that need screening because many of them are really the people who are in the workforce. I mean, we see them, these are the immigrants that are working the kitchens and everything else that is being happening to move the city along 
is being done by people who don't have insurance and many of them who qualify for screening. So I think that for the Hispanic community in particular, um, that is being diagnosed less often with early stage disease, interventions on screening will really impact mortality rates greatly. And I think the investments that we make to advocate for health insurance coverage for Medicaid expansion in states that are not expanding like Florida is key. Because I think we'll see, and this has been shown overall for cancer care, that if you expand Medicaid, just that, you improve outcomes of cancer. So we need to do that for lung cancer, at least in Florida. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with that. Um, As you had mentioned, there there are a lot of programs, lung cancer screening programs, who are able to um, implement maybe some sort of assistance program for individuals who who might need that extra financial support, and they're able to help them get that initial scan. But after that, if they're uninsured, then, um, you know, especially if, if there is a um, a potentially suspicious finding on the scan, then um, they're going to need additional testing. They're going to need a biopsy and and definitely follow up testing in following years. And so, um, without the expansion of you know insurance coverage, that becomes really hard. And so, we're able to get patients' initial scan, but but aren't able to help them afterwards. So, I I think that was a fantastic point there. And so one of your interests is um, understanding how to improve lung cancer screening messaging for the Hispanic population and other groups at high risk for lung cancer. And so um, through the advocacy efforts that we work on within ALSI, we know that it is so critical to tailor lung cancer screening information to the specific population that we are you know, either presenting to or outreaching to. And so could you share with us your work and ideas on this topic and how best we can you know, reach the Hispanic um, community and other racial minority uh, racial minorities with lung cancer screening information. Um, so one of the things that we did um, about a year and a half ago is that we started looking at the use of social media by Hispanics, and it's actually really eye opening. Like U.S. Hispanics on Instagram is in the millions. Like, and they are bilingual, and they they get messaging in English. Uh, 5.8 million people, 4.1 million people prefer Spanish. So um, when we also look at WhatsApp penetration, and this is interesting because um, use of uptake of social media kind of changes by age. So like, you know, our very elderly patients in many ethnic groups, we don't really know how to use social media, but it turns out that many Hispanics who are elders, they have to get savvy at communicating by WhatsApp because this is the way they communicate with people back home where they come from in the Caribbean, South America. So we have found that there's actually more literacy than you expected. Um, and when they have done surveys looking, asking Hispanics how they receive information. So there's still a big percentage that uses print media. And that's actually bigger for Hispanics and other groups. So like newspapers and community papers are read by older men and older women all over Miami. But then social networks and social media, is it's it's actually utilized heavy. So, so we did this campaign where we um, partnered with a marketing firm. And marketing firms have a lot of information on people. So we actually asked these marketing firms to find people who were Hispanics, who were age 50 to 80, who were in our catchment area who were spoke English or Spanish and had been a sm- had a smoking history. So we couldn't get the specific smoking history, but we could get a smoking history. And then we were able to do a direct campaign where you get basically like banners of our screening program and kind of news of our screening program in your Facebook page, in your Instagram page. And uh, with that campaign, we were able to do that 
um, right after COVID, because that's when we see that saw the biggest drop in our screening program. And we sent, let me tell you how many we sent, we did that social media campaign with programmatic banners and platforms for Instagram. Then we did also a direct mail campaign because we know um, our community also uses print media. So we use postcards uh, and 65,000 leads by email and 87,000 leads by postcards. And then we measure how many visits we had to our website and how many new referrals we got. And we saw a significant uh, increase in a short amount of period. So like after um, before the campaign, we had about 230 page views. After the campaign, we had about 8,800 page views. And people people were spending about two minutes in the, in the website, kind of moving around through our screening explanation and how to get screened and what it meant. So there is some kind of cost effectiveness of direct marketing, I think, for our Hispanic population. The problem with many of these interventions is that, of course, when you stop doing this, can you keep it up? So, but I think that's only part of the solution. So the other things that I do is that I think that, you know, people are addicted to social media and TikTok. So I, we have done videos on TikTok on, on screening and we have put them out there just because I feel it is kind of silly, but it is something that is entertaining to people and at least it gets the messaging and we have done that in English and Spanish. So that's part of it. Um, another part of it is to just kind of have doctors go and speak to community organizations and organizations of the American Cancer Society and volunteers that are doing some of the community navigation so that everybody knows about this. Um, and so that's kind of the work that we have done on that end. But we we need to grow more. Um, and I think we need to kind of, you know, we need to, we, we have so much work to do to make lung cancer feel like something that you will do every year. And I think patients don't, don't think about that. Um, they don't think about as a checkbox of another thing that I have to get done. Um, so again, that was kind of something unique that we found uh, that we can kind of um, kind of uh, pivot from the use of internet and use of social media and social media networks in Hispanics to you kind of use that opportunity as a way to uh, en engage patients on the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here at ALSI, um, we're also trying to figure out how best we can use um, social media to share information as well. And one of our recent initiatives is um, working with mayors, governors, and state leaders to um, to film public service announcements, a very short one-minute public service announcements that emphasize the importance of screening, talk about the screening criteria. And I think, um, as you had mentioned, like when approaching um, a community, I think having someone who is within that community, whether it be a state leader or, or someone that the community knows well and trusts is can be can really help with that messaging. And so that's that's something that we're working on within Alcan. And we've seen uh we've seen a lot more engagement with our PSA videos um, than with some of our other tweets um, and, and other outreach strategies. So I definitely think that utilizing social media could be a great strategy and um, I, I haven't uh, I haven't heard of another organization using TikTok to um, share lung cancer screening information, which is very very interesting. And so um, one question that we often get is, uh, you know, when we outreach to social media, especially through Instagram, the patient or sorry, not the patient population, but the population that uses these social media platforms are oftentimes going to be younger individuals who m most likely won't be eligible for lung cancer screening. And so. Um, the, the way we approach it is that we have a plus one campaign where instead of asking people, you know, are you eligible for lung cancer screening? We ask them, do you know someone who's eligible for lung cancer screening? So that that opens up, you know, uh, and, and taps into their networks, um, whether it be like family members or friends. 
relatives who might be eligible for lung cancer screening. And so um, instead of direct, we might not be able to directly reach the individuals who are eligible for lung cancer screening, but we're able to still get that information to them, hopefully. And so I, I wanted to ask, um, what is your uh, uh, marketing strategy or advertising strategy when you um, post about lung cancer screening through TikTok? Is it a similar like plus one campaign or, or kind of how do you approach that? I can show you the video, but I, it won't play on audio. But basically we just picked a song and there was like a dance. <laughs> it was like a flamenco of lung cancer screening. And then it just basically popped up with like the different criteria. So it was just supposed to be fun and kind of like get attention. Um, but you know, to your point, these are younger, you're engaging a younger audience, but for the Hispanic community in particular, where you have multi-generational uh, families and, and people that live in the same household, and, and so in a way though, the plus one campaign works very well for communities like that, that there's the young people are really engaging with the older generation in the same room. They're coming to the medical appointments. Um, so it is kind of like a family affair. And we have done that in other initiatives. So we have, um, we have targeted like, um, like um, family members of breast cancer survivors about diet and exercise to get more breast cancer survivors to like concentrate on diet. So you have to kind of get more people engaged around you. The same thing with lung cancer screening. I think you have to kind of get the message out there. You know, we have we have less smoking in the United States, but what people don't realize is that we definitely have more people being diagnosed because the peak of lung cancer in women, for example, and younger people that have been have either genetic predispositions or environmental exposures, that those groups are going up. So really raising awareness about lung cancer screening for the people who are eligible is the first step and then kind of going the next step about who's being missed by the current risk criteria. Um, and I think you're right, like we have to kind of investigate different groups to understand what their risk is. Um, and we see that because we have a very uh, fluid immigrant community. So we get, we may get um, you know, there was one month that we got all these patients that came from one particular country with mesothelioma. And we were like, what's happening there? Like, it's just kind of like a very unique kind of epidemiology thing. Um, and then you have people that have been here for a long time, their smoking rates may be going down, but maybe the women in those households are the ones that have been exposed younger. So that those are the ones that you have to have a conversation with. Um, the one thing that we would like to do next, uh, which has been done in Vanderbilt, is really kind of tie in um, because women are really the advocates um, for healthcare in their families. So I always, I, 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 Vanderbilt did a great program where they combined tight end lung cancer screening to mammograms. So they had this messaging of like, you can get both or you're, you should be doing both. But I think when they did that, not only did they, they took an opportunity of something that women were doing all the time, but they actually targeted the most important person in that family to know about lung cancer screening. So I think that that's something that we wanna grow in. There's another um, intervention that we're looking at, are looking at survivors of um, bladder cancer, urothelial cancer. So people that would be at risk for lung cancer because they have similar smoking risk factors. So target them because we do miss people who, who, who have survived one cancer and they got diagnosed with another one. So we recently had a fellow who just um, presented this, just looking at, you know, what comes first, your lung cancer, your bladder, because you miss opportunities then, like you could have had a woman who came from a mammogram could have, was missed that could also have been screened for a lung, for lung cancer, or someone who survived bladder cancer could have been screened for lung cancer. So 
all these missed opportunities are there um, and we just kind of have to kind of put our you know brains together and kind of find ways to to send the message out yeah and i think um a lot of in, in recent years uh, there's been a lot of um great progress in terms of raising awareness about breast cancer screening cervical cancer screening um colon cancer screening uh, these other cancers that are very common and um uh well known and i think if we can combine efforts for raising awareness for breast cancer screening with lung cancer screening um, awareness efforts that can be really impactful just as you had said and so one thing that we've tried to do is um, work with breast cancer clinics to to put up uh, postcards on lung cancer screening so offering offering that information about lung cancer screening when they come in to get their mammograms and so um, as you had mentioned Dr. Rodriguez it's possible that patients die who might be at high risk for one cancer will also be at high risk for another cancer or who who are already diagnosed with uh, you know, one cancer might be at high risk for, for another, um, you know, a- another cancer later on, and so um, just par- paralleling those efforts together could be could go a long way, as well as um, also combining efforts to uh, to increase smoking cessation. And so, if we can get lung cancer screening information into smoking cessation centers, that can also go a long way. Since patients have told us that, um, you know, they were able to get lung cancer screening, but then um, you know, there wasn't a clear, clear connection to resources on um, smoking cessation, and so they, they had to kind of go out on on their own to find the resources um, and smoking cessation centers near them. Whereas if we um, are able to make that connection and that bridge for them, that can go a long way. So, someone if a person goes first to a smoking cessation center, um, they, they also receive information about lung cancer screening and vice versa. I think that can be very helpful as well. Yeah. One thing that we haven't spoken about that I think a lot about and trying to find ways to like make it operational, it's kind of the bias that goes into. So I think a lot about why, if, if you know, if five patients came into a clinic and then the primary care doctor was very busy addressing like diabetes, hypopressure, all these kinds of things. But then they chose to refer one patient. Like if you have five patients, they're all eligible. Who do they choose to refer? And then I think that's an interesting question because there is some kind of bias um, from the provider perspective about things that are worth discussing with a patient or patients that they believe will be, you know, because there's this messaging of screening is tied to sex smoking cessation. I find that in a way sometimes that hurts the programs because there might be some kind of calculation that is made that, okay, this patient is really not going to quit smoking. Like maybe they're not the best eligible patient for a screening when we should really separate the conversations because they're two different issues. Um, Because you can detect cancer early on a smoker and cure them just the same as someone who didn't want to stop smoking. And to us, the most important thing is to detect patients early. So I think the the bias um, from the patient who doesn't want to inquire about lung screening because they think it's deadly and they don't want to talk about their smoking history from the bias from the providers who are very busy who choose to have these conversations in that are easier with some patients and not others and it's actually the patients that is the hardest to talk to uh, that take the longest time that are actually the most impactful conversations that you can have so i think that's something that we want to move into like and for that you need people who are experts in health decision-making, and um, we have a group that does behavioral kind of research because I think that we need to find ways for these conversations to become easier and and for these conversations to be be prioritized the same way that diabetes and high blood pressure and other things get are because there's so many 
things that get discussed and there's so limited amount of time. The one thing that has really helped, and I know, I don't know if you have had other people talk about telemedicine. So we, before COVID, when we were really struggling to kind of keep the numbers and our program closed for about two months. Um, so we were not taking screening programs because we were prioritizing other things. Um, we learned that telemedicine was a, the best way to counsel patients that were being referred to the program. So we have gone from like in-person um, appointments that were really a waste of time for patients because patients will, we have a centralized program. So uh, patients get referred, a physician cannot order a screening low dose CT. They have to order a, a test for the screening program. And then that test, that order goes to a navigator who then counsels the patient. So they used to have to come meet the navigator, have a shared decision visit, talk about smoking cessation, and then be set up for an appointment. And now we're saving people time and we get them on the phone and we get them to agree, not agree. And we can also follow up a little bit easier because like many cities, Miami has horrible traffic. You have to get a parking spot and we we really lose people in the kind of logistics of coming in for another appointment. So telemedicine has really changed, really, I think the landscape of what you can do for patients in these shared decision visits. And also, you know, at some point these visits were had to be given by a healthcare professional that was trained, but obviously these, these conversations can be have by, can be given by anyone. And our navigators are well-trained to do that. So, um, and that's, that's also, that's also, I think really important because many of our primary care doctors feel that already they have so many demands and uh, demands and alerts on their time that if you kind of take that work out of their workflow, so you say, you know, you just refer the patient and we'll take care of the rest. We'll make sure the patient gets followed. We counsel the patient, we refer them to smoking cessation. So we kind of take that conversation that takes time out of your, the time that you, limited time that you have. So we're hoping that um, we can convince more primary care doctors that that we do a good job of that. And, um, and it's, a, it's a moving target. We have some providers when we were reviewing clinics that refer really well and clinics that don't refer very well. We were looking at this question of bias and why, what's a competing interest. And we found that there's just some providers who are just very good at it. Like they have made it part of their spill. Like they just talk to patients about diabetes, hypertension, lung screening, 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 screening. So, and then some people do it better. So you have to train the new doctors to do it as well and learn about the conversations that work and the conversations that don't work and, and how you can really get patients to, to adhere to screening. So that's one thing that another work that we have done is just looking at our, our adherence rate. Um, and that's actually kind of unique because if you compare to the national lung cancer screening trial that when I was a fellow was being done in Philadelphia, I remember like all those patients came back, like all those patients, like and actually I will tell you in the trial, it was like over 80% of patients came back. When we looked at our, at our own data of adherence, um, we had a no-show rate for the initial visit of 26%. So a large amount of patients that were referred that never made it to that first visit. So they never got screened. And then when we looked at the patients that once they got screened came back for the next annual imaging, that was 31%. So a big draw from the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. And this has been shown in other centers that you lose patients through the process and you kind of have to understand why, because if you don't do this, this test, you're losing an opportunity of people that were already engaged. And then we look to see like, you know, what factors determine people that are adherent or not. So we found that um, 
for some reason, there was more adherence in men than women, which we thought was surprising, 22 to 19%. Uh, like many things, married individuals have more support, so they were more likely to adhere to the next screen. And then we found actually that former smokers more than uh, non than, than former smokers who had quit were more likely to adhere than current smokers. So um, Hispanics, like other groups in our in our database, were not coming back for the second screen as often as people did in the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. So that's another thing, like, you know, people that even are in the system of your screening program, you lose them. And that's another area that we need to invest in. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Rodriguez. Um, I, I know that it's we, we've, uh, we've spent a lot of time already talking about um, your screening program. So we do want to open it up to our audience Q&A now. And so if anyone in the audience has any questions, please feel free to, um, to ask your question um, by unmuting or by putting your question in the chat. We have received a question already, so I'll, um, I'll start off with this one. The question asks, is there anything that you would have done differently with your lung cancer screening program? Um, so, so, so we made our program centralized because we needed to make sure that everybody got counseling and got followed. But we have gotten pushback from providers that they feel that they should be able to order low-dose CTs that direct them, themselves. So one thing we would like to explore is like, would that make a difference? Like if people directly order the scan um, instead of having to refer them to a navigator that would order the scan. So that's something that we have to explore. Uh, like I mentioned, like all these missed opportunities and bias of who gets counseled and referred for screening versus who doesn't, that's something that we need to educate more and kind of learn more about. And then the adherence, really the way to fix it is, is just having navigators. So we need to, you know, if I, one of my, one of my um, complaints for our program and something that I go to our leadership about is that if we build it small, it stays small. So if you build a big program, like in Georgia, for example, they build a big nation uh, statewide program. So they have a lot of numbers that are kind of hard to replicate, but they, it was a, a state initiative, well-funded, they have many levels of intervention. They have many navigators, many facilities that were doing screening. So, so we to grow, we need to grow. To grow, we need to have more centers that do screening, that do screening on weekends, that do screenings at night. And we are getting there. Like we have about um, eight satellites. About half of them can do screening. So we can do it closer to where people live. But still, we're not capturing what we should capture. And you know, it's the kind of thing in in in. When you get to the level of talking to administration, they always tell you like, show me the numbers and then that you are that you have a need and then we'll hire more people. So it's hard to hire more people, but at the same time, if you have a navigator that only has a certain amount of capacity, then that kind of limits the amount of people you can put in every month. So that's something that we are working actively on conversations to try to automate it. So there are programs that have completely automated pulmonary nodules so that people get screened based on like any nodule, although that gets identified, they get referred for follow-up. Um, so there are different ways of, of, um, of finding patients that don't require doctor's uh, interface. And I think that's kind of our next level of how we um, find patients directly without having to go through the navigator referral process. So for the next question we received, um, it is, what has been the most memorable patient case for you? 
Um, so, I mean, I'm always, um, you know, I think <laughs> I have patients that have been um, followed through screening that, you know, it's so rewarding. I mean, we don't pick up that many lung cancers so in a whole program we have picked up probably around 20, but, and, but most of them have been, the, I mean, I get 90% of them have been early stage, which is the good news. So I get the, the, the memorable stories is the people that get screened and you find something and you cure it. And um, there was a, a patient that was kind enough, who actually was someone that worked in the staff of the university, who was an, a Cuban uh, man um, who smoked when he first moved to the country and had stopped and he was having a conversation with his primary care doctor and they referred him to the program and we were able to detect something. And I just, it always was memorable to me because these were people that, this is someone that worked for us. Like they worked with me and they were right there with a pulmonary mass that needed to be found. So that's very memorable because I think that if we're missing the people kind of next to us, like we're, we're missing everyone. Um, so that 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 was one story, and then you know we always meet people that incidentally got found, got diagnosed with lung cancer. So people that had a coronary, um, like they had a, a, a scan for for coronary calcifications, and then they get found to have an oil. I have all these patients that have had back pain, car accidents, and they get found with things, but they're like the lucky few. And the whole point of screening is that it shouldn't be the lucky few that get found with lung cancer, that it should be everyone who has something there growing. Um, but yeah, that was one story that stayed with me. And we he actually was kind enough to share his story on the news. And we did a piece because we do a lot of things with media uh, to kind of share the story because people remember stories. They don't remember numbers. So we, we told his story, the fact that he was here in the university and he told us about when he started smoking very young in Cuba, when he was like in his teens um, and you know how, when he quit and how he felt about it and how lucky he felt that, you know, he was cured from cancer. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing this story. Our last question is, um, how do you think the lung cancer screening guidelines need to change to reduce disparities in lung cancer screening? Um, that's a great question. I think that um, we, um, you know, I think that we are doing better by starting almost everything at 50, uh, because then that's a, that's a time that you're having other conversations with patients. So like you're talking to them about colorectal cancer, you're talking to breast cancer screening in their 40s. So I think that it could even be younger for people that you find um, have had at some point we can able to detect exposure like if people have been exposed to secondhand smoke in a significant amount then we'll be able to screen those and add that into the mix i think there are other things that increase your risk that don't don't get included like copd and um, patients that have been in immunosuppressive therapy so there's a lot of other caveats to people that may be at risk that get missed i would love to see lung cancer screening kind of um, um kind of mapped out by community so you know there's these big maps in of, of availability of screening programs and where the high-risk smokers are and how these two things don't correspond like in the there's like the there's a big part of the united states that has rural communities that have heavy smokers and no lung cancer screening program near nearby and the same thing happens in a micro cost in, in our own smaller communities like we have lung cancer screening programs but we may have people from the keys that have to drive you know an hour and a half or we might so we i think the one thing that we screening programs will also have to take into account are kind of like 
what are the barriers and what are the smoking rates in different communities that are at risk that are not getting access. So I think that that's another level of screening outreach that that is not really accounted for. Um, so besides taking into consideration other comorbidities that increase your risk, I think that the, the risk certification could be better and we might find that there are ethnic groups that need even younger ages to be screened. But we also need to kind of find people where they are. And I think that we have the ability to do that. If we can map patients better, we can then intervene better. Um, like, you know, if we know that this is where all the smokers are or like people, communities that are higher risk, then we could really put our efforts there more. So that was the last question we received, um, and that concludes our podcast. So we would like to thank you again, um, Dr. Rodriguez, for your willingness to share your wealth of knowledge and perspective on many of the pressing issues in the lung cancer world, um, especially in the Hispanic community. We appreciate all the work and research uh, you are currently doing. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alcsi.org. Um, this week, we have podcasts with Dr. Molshine and Dr. Emily Stone. Zoom registration and, and information on these individuals can be found on our website under calendar events or on our Instagram bio. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Okay, okay thank you. Bye-bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.